And uh, I'm going to get myself put together. And I'm not completely put together because do I have? Oh, yes. Reading glasses. <coughs> okay. Get these down. Well, good morning. Why I try to figure out uh, where my presentation is. Let's see. Can I do this? Okay. This thing here wants to slide down. Okay, we'll get him up. And I have a new um, pointer Joel wants me to use. I guess that's on now. And does this do things? Okay, good. He's telling me it does stuff. Okay. All right. <laughs> Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for an opportunity to come before my brothers and sisters and share uh, things that you've been teaching me. Uh, dear Lord, I do pray that it wouldn't be me, uh, but it would be you. We pray that we'd be edified today by studying your word and all the complexities and the depth uh, that it does have. And even in the, the historicity of it, Lord, as we look back in time and understand the culture that the Israelites found themselves in the promised land and what that was like and what you provided for them, dear Lord. And so we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. So what like I <coughs> like to do, as you've noticed, is start off with a, uh, an artist. I'm just looking at myself here. What do we got? Okay. Something like that. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I set a, <laughs> a little countdown kind timer for me. Okay, so this is Albert Durr, uh, another one of my f f uh, favorite artists. Uh, Albert was um, an illustrator, was a painter. He also uh, did a number of etchings. Uh, you may be familiar with uh, one of his famous ones called the Four Horsemen. It's the Four Horsemen of the call it Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. This is a self-portrait of Albert. Uh, handsome guy, and he lived uh, during a transition period. Uh, I think uh, Reformation happened, if I'm correct, 1517. And so uh, he was a Catholic uh, to start with, because at the time in Europe, that's really what there was. And uh, so the Reformation took place 1517 uh, on my wife's birthday, uh, October 31st. I do remember that. And so he had around 11 years to consider, you know, what the Reformation was about. Uh, and he converted to, at the time, loosely associated Lutherans. And so he was part of that uh, uh, faith tradition. I guess this thing here does something too. There we go. Okay. Learning how to use this. Okay. So this is another portrait of Albert Durer. A lot of people think that this is Christ, a stylized Christ. But no, it's actually Albert Durer as well. Um, Here's the next one, portrait I'd like you to, a series of portraits I'd like you to look at. Now, this is known uh, as the four holy men or the four apostles. And um, on one side are John and Peter, and the other side are Mark and Paul. And it's a little hard to see. I'm going to try this thing here. Does this work here? How does, how does it? Oh, I got to do this one. Sorry. Uh, there we go. Okay. Still getting used to this technology. Along the bottom here is uh, inscriptions. And Dura put a bunch of stuff in here. And we're going to go over what he, what he put in here. I don't know if I like this thing, but I'm going to get used to it. So uh, I've truncated these verses. And so uh, he, he quotes uh, you know, John, uh, Peter, Mark, and Paul. So in John, and this is just a truncation of it, but you get an idea. Beloved. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And by this you will know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. And that goes on and on. So this is, um, let me get this here. Right, okay. So October 6, 1526. So this is like nine years after the Reformation. And in some ways, this is like a polemic against the Catholic Church. 
Catholic Church is not going to like seeing this, and I'm going to tell you why, because he's going after them just like Luther did as well. And by the way, this is not Lou up here uh, railing against the Catholic Church. This is just a point of history, and if you don't like it, I can't help it, okay? So uh, the, the second uh, person he uh, quotes is Peter. Uh, Therefore, rid yourself of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that it so that by it you may grow up in respect to salvation if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. So he's emphasizing here, uh, yearn for the milk of the word. And remember, Gutenberg printing press, uh, the Bible being translated into the native language, the German native language, so people can now read the Bible for themselves. They don't have to just learn how to read Latin. So he's also going after that as well. You have the Bible now. You can read for yourself. Mark and Paul. (laughs) But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, slanders. And and I don't quote the whole thing here because it would just get too long. Anyhow, kind of get an idea of the flavor here. Uh, Number four, uh, and this was Mark, and I'm sorry I didn't highlight it, okay? Uh, As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplace. Another, uh, I guess you'd want to call it a dig against the Catholic Church. Is this supposed to be? I don't know. Okay, there we go. All right. So he has this other quote at the bottom. uh, And it says here, all worldly rulers in this threatening time and he's speaking to the time that he, find, he finds himself in. Beware not to take human delusion for the word of God, for God wishes nothing to be added to his word, nor taken from it. Take heed of the admonition of these four excellent men, Peter, John, Paul, and Mark. And these the two portraits here, I'm going to try to use this thing. Oops, oh, did I do something wrong? Okay, no. Fine. Okay, so this hung in the town hall in Nuremberg for a long time, and that was like Protestant territory, okay? Well, a hundred years go by, and this guy Maximilian, who is a Catholic king, uh, goes and he likes it, he goes and takes it. So we'll read here. The four holy men remain in Nuremberg for the next century. However, in 16... 27, the painting was taken to Munich by the Bavarian Duke Maximilian for his private collection. The people of Nuremberg were loathe to give up their treasure, but had no choice. They hoped that when the Roman Catholic king would see Dürer's Lutheran inscription, he would send the artwork back. Instead, Maximilian sawed off the offending portion and sent it back to Nuremberg. Okay? And it wasn't until 1922 that the written confession of Albert Durer was reunited with his painting. So what does that have to do with salvation? What Durer was saying is that look out that you do not add or subtract anything from the word of God and salvation. And because people were doing it then and people are doing it today, what we believe It's very simply this, that Christ died for our sins and rose from the grave. And if you believe that, you are saved. When um, uh, Rembrandt was standing at the feet of the cross and looking at what Christ was was about to happen to Christ, he understood that that transaction, Christ being the sacrificial lamb for Rembrandt, for me and for you, was all that was needed to secure your salvation, nothing more. So what do people now in, I'm going to call it evangelicalism, like to add to the gospel or take away? One of the things you'll find in certain groups is you can't be saved unless you're baptized. Well, what happens if you can't be baptized? What happens if, I don't know, you're you're in a plane and it's going down and the guy next to you decides, Dear Lord, I guess this is time for me to place my faith in you. And I'm not being humorous. He couldn't be baptized. Is he not saved? How about the, this whole notion that 
if you make Christ the Lord of your life uh, and make him Lord enough, then you can be saved. That's a problem too, because how much of a Lord does he need to be? And if he stops being your Lord temporarily or partially, are you no longer saved? So these are adding things or subtracting things from the word of God. You have to be very careful. So when I think today is communion day. Is that correct? Today is communion day. So when we look at the elements, we're going to see the bread represent the body of Christ, broken for you, as simple as that. The blood of Christ shed for you. Nothing more can be added to that. Nothing more can be subtracted. And Durer knew this, and that's why he painted uh, this painting as a physical reminder to uh, the people, don't add to the word of God and don't take away from it. If you do, you'll get yourself into trouble. In this historical setting uh, where Durer was living, uh, most of us know about the excesses of the Catholic Church, just to name one, indulgences, thinking that you could pay to get out of hell. I mean, how much do you need to pay to get out of hell? Uh, so it, that's the kind of stuff that is insidious. So I would say, if you've trusted Christ for your salvation, thank God that he did it all. You have nothing to do with it. Should you live like Christ is the Lord of your life? Yes, you ought to live. That's for your sanctification. Should you repent and stop doing things you shouldn't do and start doing the things you should do? Yes, that's part of your sanctification. But don't confuse that with obtaining salvation. That's a mistake. Okay, so we're going to get out of here. And now we're going to try to find uh, today's honey presentation. All right, we've got week two updated. (laughs) All right. So... Uh, There's four parts of this presentation of Honey in the Bible, and I've been doing it Sunday morning and Wednesday night, and some of you have been here and some of you have not. So there may be a little um, uh, duplication of things. So we're going to kind of get through, we got about halfway through uh, this part, uh, this second part here, and we worked our way down. Let me just back up for a second here. So the grand themes throughout scripture, including the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's grand themes that run throughout scripture, even in terms of your salvation, God's promise. So when we look at the elements today, we're trusting that God says, whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. We're trusting that we don't get to heaven somehow, or have to stand before God in judgment with unbelievers. We're trusting that Christ's work on the cross and and God's promise about that is sufficient to save us. Taking this back to a... Excuse me? Oh, yeah. um, Thank you, Mike. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I thought Mike was telling me, you're all messed up, Lou. Sorry. (laughs) Which he might. (laughs) Hopefully he doesn't say that. (laughs) Okay, thank you. Okay, so uh, when this comes to, so this Honey in the Bible uh, discussion focuses on two areas. One is the specific promises of a land of milk and honey, excuse me, and that's why uh, we're going to continue to focus on that. Uh, And then a broader context of uh, honey being equated to the Word of God. All right, so one of the things we looked at was the patriarchs went up and down the land of promise. Uh, They never took possession of it. They will someday in the millennial kingdom, is my understanding. But uh, the Exodus did, and they enjoyed that land that the patriarchs got to see but never really occupy. And so we kind of, you know, chugged through all of this, and I'm going to... Uh, so one of the things that God promised the patriarchs was this, the threefold promise, a land, a great nation, and through your seed, all the nations, all peoples will be blessed. That seed is Christ. And throughout the history of Israel, even through our captivity, because Christ was kind of going to come through that seed, through that line, God had to preserve his people, even in captivity. And uh, 
certainly sending them to a land that was barren and they were all going to starve to death wouldn't have been a way of doing that. One of the things we did talk about was that the land they were leaving was Egypt. And we did discuss this, that in Egypt, honey was um, prevalent and it was very important. The pharaohs were known by two things, papyrus, which was absolutely... uh, had worldwide importance because it was the only form of a paper-like substance you could write on. And the second thing was honey and those little winged insects. I will try to use this thing here. There we go. These little winged insects here, these are honeybees. And the pharaoh was identifying himself with this. This other looking little plant, this is the papyrus. And so Almost all pharaohs were known as he, the pharaoh, particular pharaoh of the sedge, the papyrus, and the bee. So the land that they were leaving was a land of honeybee honey, and the land they were going to is also a land of honeybee honey. I wanted to go back to this particular thing. We're going to revisit this a couple times. Prior to the discovery of Tel Rehov in 2008, there had not been an archaeological discovery of ancient uh, apiaries, ancient beehives in Israel. Even though it was assumed and there was lots of other substantiating evidence, there hadn't been physical evidence that there were beehives there. And a tell is just a mound of dirt where people live. People want to live up. They don't want to live down. So this is what they excavated. And in one corner here, you can see an aerial view. Another at the bottom corner is a man in front of these, one of the excavators, one of the professor, I think it's Professor uh, Mazur, uh, is standing in front of the beehives he has found. But um, so let me just set the, the, uh, the stage here. Uh, the Exodus is around 1400-ish BC. They leave and they take possession of the land. But they don't completely subdue it. There are pockets that they have not subdued. And this particular area is one where the Canaanites are still there. It isn't until David's time that they actually are able to take uh, and subdue this particular area and either kick out the Canaanites. Unfortunately, and this is part of the tragedy, it's a bit of a tragic story, they kick the Canaanites out with all their idolatrous worship. But the Israelites actually pick back up on that and start doing it themselves, okay? And God condemns them for this. So here is an altar that is found there. Um, This is what's known as a a horned clay altar. And it it says here, it's a little hard to make out, but uh, let me get this here. There are two nudie things here These are definitely not things that God said uh, for um, the Israelites to put on the tabernacle or any such thing, right? This is all all pagan stuff that's here. And they have found other little nudie uh, things. I know it's like, gee, that doesn't look like much of a nude to me. Take my word. There are little nudie um, uh, idols that they have gotten in here. And so this is a a cutout here of... um, uh, from what this particular paper. In addition to the complex altar found in conjunction with the beehives shown on page 209, which was those beehives I was showing you, we found an almost complete altar with triangular windows cut into its facade in association with an open cult location in Area E. So Area E on this archaeological area, they could tell for sure this was a very cultic area within that settlement. Um, at the eastern end of the lower city. The altar, this is interesting, the altar had been found smashed to pieces. So interesting. Possibly as a deliberate act of derision during the destruction at the end of the ninth century. At the end of the ninth century, this is after David has now conquered this area and Israelites are coming in. And there are some reforms. It's a kind of a, you know, a, a push and a pull. Uh, there were about a dozen of these altars found at Tel Rof. This one was incomplete, you know, complete. It wasn't smashed. But, and 
it was right near, unfortunately, that apiary. And remember we looked at, uh, I think it was a verse in Leviticus, don't put honey on the altar. Don't do that. I don't want that as part of your sacrifice. Why? Because these people were doing it there. This was a Canaanite um, practice. And they would put the honey on the altar and it would smoke and, and uh, with these little nudie things, who knows what they were doing. Whatever it was, it probably was not something they should have been doing. And, but it is interesting to see that maybe there was also the desire to get right with God and we know that King Josiah, for instance, that was several hundred years earlier, smashed lots of these things. But prior to that, there were other instances where people tried to reform and get out of this Canaanite nonsense. And it could very easily be it, it, that smashed altar was one that someone basically said, hey, we can't be living like this. So what is the application for us, folks? <laughs> yeah. Where's Tell Roth? Tell Roth, uh, I'm, it's a, uh, I don't know if I have a map here. It, it, was, in, uh, it, w- it was in the Ten Tribe area. M- Manasseh, it was, in the, it was in the area of Manasseh. I- I- Ithacar and Manasseh, Ithacar and Manasseh, up in that little area to the west of the, I think it's the Sea of Galilee. It's up in that area there. So, um, but in, when the kingdom was unified, uh, David could go, could go and, uh, uh, from a, uh, a global perspective or a national perspective, go ahead and eradicate some of these Canaanites. But then once uh, uh, Israel, the, the, the kingdom was split in half after uh, Solomon died and Jeroboam and Rehoboam, that whole thing there, um, Jeroboam went north and I think Rehoboam went south and uh, Jeroboam was a pagan, and all the people followed after him were pagans too. So this particular geographic area had a strong abiding influence of paganism. And yeah, I don't mind. If you want to ask questions, it's perfectly fine. I know sometimes we, we do it, sometimes we don't. But yeah, especially the pastor can ask any question he wants. Okay, okay. Now, here, here's another little crazy shrine that they found there. And... Uh, it's difficult to say how these shrines function. Perhaps they held fertility figurines or other sacred objects or cultic paraphernalia such as the silver-plated bronze bull figurine found in connection with a similarly shaped shrine. So maybe they put inside this little shrine these little fertility idol things and they would put them in the corner because these aren't. this is not very big. This is about this big. It's like the like size of a microwave oven. They've got these little these little idols in here, potentially. Uh, the top of this is a lion, and he's got his paws on two human heads on either side. And the lion also was a cultic figure as well. Uh, so I'm going to read the last thing, and then we'll make the point, the application to us, because why are you bringing this up? And this is, the, of course, the author's uh, um, kind of conclusion. But what does the presence of such an object Tell us about the identity. Remember, these are secular religious authors who are of, uh, working at the University of uh, Jerusalem or another one of the uh, Israeli um, academic institutes. What does the presence of such an object tell us about the identity of the inhabitants of the Iron Age II, Tel Rehov, and their religion? The shrine as well as the clay altars indicate strong Canaanite traditions among the local population in the 10th and 9th century BC, BCE. No doubt at the time of the Israelite monarchy, the worship of Yahweh was slowly adopted by this local population. Now, these are the author's musings, not necessarily, they're not divine. This is what they're surmising. The struggle between the emerging Israelite religion, uh, which I kind of take issue with because the Israelite religion has been flourishing for several hundred years before that. But regardless, he's talking about a struggle. The struggle between the emerging Israelite religion and the worship of the Canaanite deities, such as Baal and Asherah, is a prominent theme in the biblical narrative and the rich cultic objects found at Tel Rehov might give us a material peek behind the scenes at this dramatic time in history of ancient Israel. So we look uh, historically in this land of milk and honey. Honey was being used in an appropriate way and an inappropriate way. And 
Israelites were conflicted in their um, living out their faith. And that can happen to us as well. That's kind of the personal application. Be careful what you have in your house. If, if, if Christ was to go in your house today and do an inventory of what he sees or do an inventory of what he sees you watching on TV or looking on the internet or any other kind of thing, would he find you conflicted as well as these people in Tel Rehov? Would, would he find things such as this that don't belong in a Christian's life? So that's kind of the, the personal application, kind of bringing it down from this big look at honey in the Bible to how am I living my life? Is, is my life a holy life? Is my, or do I have things that don't belong in my life? All right, so next. All right, now we're back. There was a little segue. It's an interesting thing. So we're, I'm still, kind, I remember I said kind of beat the dead horse, but I'm still trying to show that throughout this area of um, the promised land, Cana, was lots and lots of domesticated bees. And so here's a journal article, and these are all recent, 2021. Uh, Royal Society uh, 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 Journal. And, uh, you know, I, I try to summarize these things. Uh, and the, the, the title is Bee Products in Prehistoric Southern Levant Evidence of Lipid, Lipid Organic the lipid organic record, and the lipid organic record is beeswax. They're finding beeswax there. Beehive products have a rich global history in the wider Levantine region. Bees had a significant role in Egypt, like I've maintained, and in Mesopotamia. And intensive beekeeping was noted in Israel during the biblical period when apiaries were first identified. This study, this journal article, investigates the origins of this extensive beekeeping through organic residue analysis of pottery from prehistoric sites in the southern Levant. The results suggest that beehive products from likely wild bees were used, and I'm not sure why he's saying likely wild bees, maybe there were wild bees that were domesticated, were used during this, uh, boy, I have a problem pronouncing this. <laughs> okay, this particular period, which goes from the Copper Age up to the Iron Age. And that's during the time that uh, the uh, Jews are living in this area here. And here's just a little map here. All these areas, now you can recognize this map. This is the Promised Land. All these little dots, these are all areas where they have found the evidence of, of beehives. And by that, the evidence of particular... Uh, chemical marker of beeswax found in these different uh, archaeological digs. So if anyone was trying to say that the Jews didn't have bees in the honeybees in the promised land, that's wrong. That's it's just simply not wrong because it's ubiquitous. It's all over the place. Uh, so we'll go to the next thing here. So this is, uh, ah, this is a fun one here. You're going to like this one. Uh, the evidence of land flowing with milk and honey. So let's get our Bibles open, and we're going to look at Numbers 13. This is, all, this is an interesting one because it's never, it, up until today, it may never have made sense to you why they said this. So Numbers 13. I, found, I, I find this stuff fascinating. Hopefully you guys do too. Okay, so Numbers 13, and like Dave likes to say, where's Numbers? Well... Here's your whole Bible. I don't know. It's about a tenth of the way through there, okay? It's in the Pentateuch or the Torah, right? Okay, so uh, Numbers 13. And it's, it's this whole area where the spies are sent out, okay? And I have 17 to 27. Mm. When Moses uh, sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, he said, go up there into the Negev, and then go up into the hill country, that's more north, see what the land is like, and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, whether they are few or many. How is the land which they live? Is it good or bad? How are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps or with fortifications? How is the land? Is it fat or lean? Remember, God has promised Moses a land of milk and honey, at the same time he's saying, uh, let's see what it really is like, okay? And so, uh, verse 21, uh, excuse me, uh, verse 20. 
Uh, how is the land? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort then to get some of the fruit of the land. Now the time, uh, now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin, as far as Rehob, to Lobo Hamath. And when they had gone up into the Negev, they came to Hebron where uh, these particular people were living. I don't want to have to struggle with pronunciation. And in verse 23, uh, then they came to the valley of Eshrol, where and from there cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes. And they carried it on a pole between two of them with some of the pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshrol because of the cluster of the sons of the Israel cut down from there. And when they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh, and they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And thus they told him, we went to the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Now, yes, they are bringing back grapes, but why does he talk about, well, that's a clear indication that there's honey there. What does grapes and honey have to do with anything? And so this is where the, the interesting part is. This is another journal article. It's called Cap Removal by Honeybees Leads to Higher Pollen Rewards from Grapevine Flowers. So what do honeybees have to do with grapes? So grapes do not need to be pollinated by honeybees, but grapes have pollen and some nectar on them. So the bees, when bees are pollinating things, well, I've never actually talked to a bee, but (laughs) I know what they're after. They're after pollen, because that's a, a, a carbohydrate, um, be a, a, a protein for the baby bees, and they're after uh, nectar, because that's the har- carbohydrates. So, you know, a good diet is carbohydrates and protein. And so the bees are after that. And we're going to learn that the reason pollination takes place isn't because the bees are intentionally trying to do it. You may not realize this, and we'll look at some close up pictures, but bees are actually furry, they have hairs all over their bodies. And when they go to one flower and they're getting the, uh, either the nectar or the pollen, they're getting coated with this stuff, okay, on their little hairy furs. And then when they go to the next flower, some of that rubs off and so something from this flower goes to that flower and you have uh, more flowers. So now the next picture here. So there's three pictures. Uh, a photographic sequence showing the removal of the Calaptra from the grape flower, now this is a Grenache type grape by honeybee workers. So in this first circle in A, looks like a big green blob. Well, underneath that blob is the flower that will eventually uh, become a grape. And you gotta get that off of there. And so the honeybee is over there trying to get to the pollen and inadvertently, he removes this cap. This is called the Calaptra. And the honeybee removes the cap, doesn't do it intentionally. And then in C, a newly opened flower is visible. And you can see in this little C thing here, these three little or four little white flowers, those things are all going to become grapes. And so modern vineyards they don't want clusters. Maybe if, if you go into the grocery store, you pick up a cluster and you see, well, there's a bunch of holes here. There's some grapes missing here and some grapes missing there. That's because the Calaptra has not been removed, okay? Uh, so m- many uh, um, vineyards now are putting, and they've understood this more, uh, that the bee can help them. It's not going to pollinate the grape, but, but it is going to help get that little Cal- Calaptra device off of there so you can have a full cluster of grapes. So what, what do grapes look like over there? This just blew my mind. So this is a picture of grapes. If you often wondered, why did they have to have a pole to put a little uh, thing of grapes on? This is, this is not an AI thing. This is true. I've found several of these gigantic clusters of grapes. So maybe this is why they found one of those there. But uh, 
part of that also, maybe, I don't know, maybe they knew too that having bees helped grapes grow. And so they could say, listen, there's honey over there, there's bees over there, and oh, by the way, here's the evidence of all of that. So it's just kind of an interesting uh, tidbit. I, when I look at all these things, to me, I just say, how unsearchable are God's ways? It's just so cool that he does all these little things to make it possible. And for the land of promise for the, for the Jews, he was going to make sure it was abundant and fertile. Now, here's our little honeybee right here. And see all the hair this guy has on him? Uh, one thing to notice, and it doesn't really come out here. So the bee has six legs, and he's got antennas. Um, do you know where the bee's nose is? It's his antennas. His antennas are what he smells with, or she smells with. I mean, boys, remember, we talked about this the other day. Boys are basically useless in a beehive. They're there for one reason, for a season, then... Like, in my beehives, all the boys have been kicked out now. It's getting cold. All the girls said, we don't need you anymore. Out you go. See you later. I said, but there's food here. Yeah, we know. Out you go. <laughs> so it, 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 it does not pay to be a boy bee. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so anyhow, it, you, it's hard to see on this picture. And this is just one of, another one of these wonderful things about God. Their antennas are very, very sensitive, and they need to be kept clean. So on the front leg of the bee, let me see, does this work here? This front leg here, you can't see it, but there's a little notch built into it. The bee, it's an antenna cleaning device on the front leg, so the bee can keep her antennas clean. This is just the, the design of God. If people say, ah, yeah, it was mindless, random chance and evolution, you are nuts. I've never believed that. Uh, and so, so now let's look at this next one here. I, I'm going to try to do this. Joel claims that this will work. If I click on this, let's see, if I click on this, this is a little video. It's five minutes and we've got time. Um, let's see if it plays. Okay, hold on, okay, hold, hold on. I got this all messed up. How do I... Oh, gosh. Help, Dave. I'm in trouble. Uh, how, do I get, how do I get that over there? I want that thing there. Over here. What is this YouTube business? I don't I've never seen this. I don't know how to move that over. Okay. That's not it. This is it. Almost it. Yeah, just missed that. Can we back it up? We can all right, and we got to get some sound. Collaborative insects in the world. Each we get... hive is comprised of thousands of bees working together in order... The honeybee is one of the most collaborative insects in the world. Each hive is comprised of thousands of bees working together in order to build and sustain a colony. Within the colony, each bee has a specific role to play. A job, if you will. These are jobs like foraging for food, tending to young larvae, and building a honeycomb. But with a brain about the size of a sesame seed, it begs the question, how do bees know what specific job they need to do in order to keep balance in the hive? The answer is written into the genetic makeup of each bee. And it starts with the queen bee, who has the unique ability to designate the sex of her children, which plays a pivotal role in their future. If the queen wants to lay a female egg, she will fertilize the egg by releasing spermatozoa that is stored in the spermatheca, which sits behind her ovaries. The spermatheca is filled during her first week of life, when she mates with up to 20 drones, or male bees. If the queen wants to lay a male egg, she will not release any spermatozoa as the egg leaves the ovaries. And drones have a singular job. That job is to mate with queens from other colonies to propagate the species. When they're not trying to mate, they eat leisurely from the honey reserves and wait for a queen to go on her nuptial flight. Female bees, or worker bees, do literally everything else. They keep the cells clean, care for the larvae, build cells, tend to the queen, store honey, forage, pollinate, guard the nest, and even feed male bees honey if they're begging for it. Each bee knows what to do because their hormones activate the part of their genetic makeup that tells them what jobs they have to tackle and when they have to tackle them. They go through four phases of jobs before dying. 
In phase one, bees go to work immediately after they emerge from metamorphosis, about three weeks after they're born. They begin cleaning the cells from which they emerged. After about three days, their hormones shift them into nurse bee mode. In this job, they feed the young brood that succeeds them. This lasts for about a week. Then phase three kicks in, and the workers become general handymen, moving farther away from the center of the hive and doing things like building honeycomb, storing food, and guarding the nest entrances. This lasts about a week. The final phase is the most dangerous. It's the foraging phase, where workers leave the nest to find pollen to bring home and feed the colony. This phase starts around day 41 and lasts until about day 50. After a short life of constant work, most workers will leave the nest as death approaches. The corpses of those that die inside the hive are carried out by undertaker bees. It's a thankless life for the worker bee, but this collaboration and process has made them one of the most successful superorganisms in nature. Okay, so I gotta do something to get rid of this here. What do I do here? Do I get out of here? Okay, good. All right, so the point I wanted to make here uh, the uniqueness of the honey, honeybee, did you, they have all these jobs, and did you catch on how they know what jobs to do? It says it's in their DNA makeup. So somehow they're programmed to do this. And my question is, the last time I checked, I remember when I had computer science 101. No one but another human had to write my code. Now I know there's AI, I got all that. Someone's still maintaining that one way or another. So this just points out the hand of God throughout all of these uh, things we see. So look for the hand of the Creator wherever you go. Look for the hand of the Creator. Okay. Thank you, Dave, for helping me with that. All right. So this is just another little incident um, uh, of the worldwide importance of honeybees as pollinators in natural habitats and how important the honeybee is to all of us. And it was important to the people in the land of uh, milk and honey. And it says Apis uh, mellifera appears to be the most important single species of pollinator across the natural systems studied, owing to its wide distribution, generalist foraging behavior, and competence as a pollinator. And, you know, I may have shared this at a, you know, a previous uh, uh, time I've spoken, but not everyone has seen this. So what this is showing here is these are uh, concentrated areas where all types of pollinators are, are living. And you can, so there's thousands and thousands of pollinators. And you can see here the brown one, the, these brown ones here, those are just honeybees. So to have any kind of presence is a big deal. So all of Europe, they play an important role there. This area, remember I talked about California? There are over a million beehives for the almond crop. We would not really have almond milk without a million beehives going out there. And you can see it in other areas. Now, I don't know what's going on in this area here, but without the honeybee, that place would be in trouble. And same way in, the, in these areas here. So I'm just making, again, making the point why the land of milk and honey and having honeybees was so important back then as it is today. Why are honeybees so important? And we did, I did show this slide earlier. Today, commercial production of more than 90 crops rely on bee pollination. Of the 3,600 species that live in the U.S., the European honeybee is the most common pollinator, making it the most important bee to domestic agriculture. About one-third of the food eaten by Americans comes from crops pollinated by honeybees, including apples, melons, cranberries, and pumpkins and all these other things. So what is, the, what is the big deal about having honeybees? Honeybees gather nectar and pollen to sustain the hive and in turn pollinate plants, which incre increase the yield of fruits, the abundance of flowers, the yield of herbs and species and medical or medicinal plants, increased yield of vegetable plants. And this is kind of important. Uh, a lot of the forage crops for grazing animals are also pollinated by bees. And if you're going to have a, uh, if you're going to have a, a, a culture like the Israelites did, where they were, had grazing animals, you better have something to graze on. And so when God said, I'm going to give you a land with milk and honey, he was implying there were going to be honeybees there. And just one of the many things that the honeybees were going to ensure was that there was 
plenty of grazing forage for the animals. You get that? It's, these two things had to take place uh, together. So that's one of the consequences of having uh, uh, the honey production. Um, oh, yeah, the land flowing with milk. And this is, I, this, okay. So uh, am I going to get here? I, yes, I can. All right. Okay. Byproducts of ancient honey production. Bees use of wax for numerous items. Mummification, medicine, we'll get into this. Cosmetics, metallurgy, and we're going to look at this. The lost wax is so important. Sculpture and boat building. So Dave, I have another one of these things that's going to come up. So let me just say, you're going to find out about why wax is so important to metallurgy. And metallurgy was important to the tabernacle and to the temple. If you go back into um, Exodus, Exodus 36, I believe, where God is outlining, I want you to have a tabernacle that looks like this, all these curtains, all these gold things that are cast, all these silver bases, uh, then there's these uh, bronze things that are cast. Without wax, it would be impossible to do it because the lost wax method allows for detailed, repeatable castings. The other thing this won't bring out but if you want hollow castings, like the, the laver, which was this large bowl, was huge. That had to be made out of, it had to be a hollow casting. Otherwise, it would be hundreds and hundreds of tons. So it had to be hollow. And the only way to do that, and I'm not going to show you, I can try to discuss it later on, is the lost wax method can be used not only to cast solid objects, but it can be used to create a cavity where you can create, uh, cast a hollow object as well. So, Dave, I know I'm going to mess this up, so just come on out and get me going here. And then we're going to be done. i got six minutes left, and this is only five minutes long. Oh, are you going to do it? Okay, go ahead. You get that cooking there. All right. Oh, look at that. Okay. Ah. He's a genius. In Atelier of L'Ecole, a school for initiation into the world of jewelry, students always ask us to tell them more and more about the ancient lost wax technique which is used still today to make jewels come to life. They ask why do these beautifully carved little ballerinas have to melt away so that the new jewel can be born? They ask so many questions that we created a new course called From the Wax Project to the Setting Technique. Lost wax is an ancient technique that dates back to about 5,500 years ago. Archaeologists and scholars have had samples all over the world. You'd almost think, now I'm not saying there was one, but you'd almost think there was an internet which told people how to make it. More likely it was very ambitious traders gossiping. Here is a piece that's only 2,450 years old. It's in the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. Another one 3,600 years old is Middle Minoan from Crete, and you can admire it in the British Museum in London. But today, we're going out of Paris on a journey to a very private enclave, and we're going to see lost wax being practiced and perfected today. Comme l'a dit très justement Inésita, la technique de la fonte à cire perdue est une technique très ancienne. Elle sert essentiellement à reproduire la pièce sculptée par l'artisan bijoutier de manière à l'amener jusqu'à l'étape métallique en or, en argent ou dans d'autres métaux. Et cette technique a évolué au fil du temps jusqu'à maintenant. La première étape est l'étape où le bijoutier va sculpter sa pièce. Nous avons des techniques de moulage, c'est-à-dire qui va nous permettre de mémoriser la pièce fabriquée par le bijoutier. Une fois que la pièce a été mémorisée dans des moules élastomères, nous allons dans ces moules injecter une cire pour faire un moule réfractaire. Nous allons injecter plusieurs fois le moule, donc récupérer plusieurs fois la pièce reproduite. Nous allons grouper toutes ces cires autour d'un tronc pour fabriquer un arbre. Une fois que l'arbre est monté, nous allons le mettre dans un cylindre. Ce cylindre est le récipient qui va recevoir l'élément réfractaire. 
L'élément réfractaire est liquide, donc il va couler à l'intérieur. Au bout de quelques minutes, cet élément réfractaire va se durcir légèrement. Une fois qu'il est dur, nous allons le mettre au four. Les premières étapes de cuisson vont permettre à la cire de couler. Et nous allons avoir à l'intérieur du revêtement le moule de cet arbre en négatif. Cette technique s'appelle la fonte à cire perdue parce que lors de la cuisson du revêtement, la cire, sous l'effet de la chaleur, va couler tout doucement et cette cire n'est plus réutilisable. Elle est à moitié calcinée, elle est perdue. Une fois que le métal en fusion est injecté dans l'élément réfractaire, nous allons passer à l'étape de décochage. C'est la technique qui permet de séparer l'élément réfractaire chaud du métal durci à l'intérieur. Évidemment, le métal est porté en fusion, nous avons les oxydations superficielles de ce métal. Nous avons des étapes qui permettent de récupérer la couleur du métal par pulvérisation, soit de corindon, soit de fibres de verre. On va donc séparer les pièces du tronc d'injection. Ces pièces séparées vont être contrôlées et aller dans un atelier de bijouterie pour pouvoir appliquer toutes les étapes du bijoutier joaillier que vous connaissez. We're back in the atelier of l'école here in Paris and I think you know now that lost wax is anything but lost. It's alive and thriving and being passed on to future generations. I'm gonna get out of this and get out of that. And so the, the point here was, uh, and I think I've mentioned this, but for those who may not have caught it, in ancient times, there was no other form of wax The only wax you could get was honeybee wax. There's no other form of wax. And so if you're going to cast things like the things for the tabernacle, you're going to need wax. Um, so in this case here, they said the wax, that wax is lost uh, completely. Um, they're using an industrial wax that they heat so, it has to be heated so high that it literally melts out and vaporizes. But Beeswax melts at a relatively low temperature, so they could recapture that. So once they had their wax, they can continue to use that over and over again to make new things. Yes, you can do sand casting for like cast iron things, but those don't have any detail. Uh, think of like a barbecue grate or, or something like that. If you want something with fine detail, with little pomegranates and all those other little doodads that it talks about in, in the tabernacle, you need that and, and in, later on in Solomon's temple or if you need hollow casting, You need wax. So when God says, I'm going to send you to a land with milk and honey, the honey part uh, we've explored so far, uh, what it does for the animals, right? It, it, yes, okay, I got, I have one, I'll finish, I have one minute left. Uh, what it does for the animals, uh, it's a, a stable food source that doesn't, uh, uh, doesn't rot. And what it allows them to do in terms of other things, such as creating things for the temple. So all of those things uh, are working together. So when God promises them a good land, he's making sure that the land he's giving them will provide for the mission that he, he has given them. So that's all we have today. I have, uh, there's two more installments of this. We're going to get into the medical properties, the protective qualities of honey uh, on Wednesday night. And you're going to find that really, really fascinating. So let's pray and... Uh, 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 have some coffee. Thank you, dear Lord, for this time and for your goodness. Thank you that you provide everything that we need, Lord, for our lives. Thank you that you provided salvation, because without that, uh, we would be lost. Thank you, dear God, for your goodness to us. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Okay. Okay.